Louise Cooney's Open Book, a Go Loud original podcast. Welcome to the Open Book Podcast presented by Go Loud. I'm Louise Cooney and this week I'm joined by the amazing author Emily Henry. Emily is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Book Lovers, People We Meet on Vacation and Beach Read. And her latest novel is Happy Place. You all know how much of a book lover I am and romance novels have gotten a bad rap for so long. I was delighted to have Emily on to talk about her similarities to Taylor Swift, (laughs) the misconceptions around the genre of romance and how she gets inspiration from her girls WhatsApp group. Thank you so much for joining today. I'm so excited to have you on. I'm a big fan of your work. You're a number one New York Times bestselling author. And I'm just so excited to have you on. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So the premise of this podcast started from a book club that I set up during lockdown. So it's it's very, it's just very cool to have you on as a New York Times bestselling author. And I love my romance novels. I'm a big fan. So I'm just excited to explore that genre with you today. Talk about your new book and like hear about your journey. Yeah, I'm excited too. Let's get into it. I've read that your writing career started with a technical writing job for a phone company. Very different to what you do now. Yes. (laughs) So I went to school for creative writing and I was hoping to probably go back for a master's or a doctorate at some point, but I had a lot of student loan debt. So I got the only like writing job I could find, which was technical writing. And I do not advise that for aspiring writers, because I think almost the worst thing you can do if you're trying to make time for your own writing is have a job that's also writing, because then you get home and you're just like, I can't work on my own writing. Like I spent all day writing phone manuals. So yeah, that was that was a, a rocky time in life. But I think it also really pushed me to pursue publishing seriously at a younger age because I just wanted out so badly. How long were you doing it for? I truly do not totally remember. I think it was probably like two and a half or three years. Oh my God. Wow. And it's all very, it's very <laughs> different, like totally different to what you do now. Yeah, yeah. There was no overlap. And I mean, the job itself was kind of all over the place. It was like they just had me writing basically anything that needed to be written I don't remember how to do anything from that job is another interesting thing. I feel like my brain just erased it. It was like, this will never be applicable in your life ever again. So it's just gone. Blocked it out. (laughs) Yeah, probably. And I did finally do the thing where I deleted all the files from like my drive that were just taking up so much space as if I would ever need these like technical (laughs) writing documents ever again. Good for you. Clearing it out. Yeah. Making space for more of the stuff that you actually like. Yeah, it was cathartic. How did you transition to what you're doing now into like more of the creative writing? You probably weren't doing it a whole pile while you were working on the yeah. phone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing is I, I always knew. Well, I guess that's not true. I mostly always knew on and off throughout my whole life that I wanted to be publishing novels. And I thought that I would probably be teaching as well, because I know that, you know, publishing is not reliable income and it's just not predictable. So The technical writing gig was really just a matter of needing a job that would help me start paying off some of my debt. But like I said, while I was there, I was so excruciatingly unhappy to be there that I did start eventually getting up at like 530 in the morning, which is not easy for me um, (laughs) to write before I went to work because I found that when I got home from work, I was just totally zapped and my mind would not let me write. So I basically started working more seriously on my novels while I was at that job. And I would work at like 530 in the morning before work. And then 
I devoted my entire weekends to writing as well so that I could like build an escape, you know, like a life raft to get out of that job. So again, like it was terrible in one way, but it was good in another way, because I think if I'd had a job that I liked a little bit more and was less draining, I wouldn't have felt as urgent a need to start seriously pursuing writing. So again, that was always somewhat the goal was to get into um, novel writing, but the transition was really just like me just spreading myself way too thin, trying to get an agent. And then once I got an agent and had a book deal, it wasn't a huge book deal, but it was like comfortable enough for me to feel like, okay, I can quit my job and just start working on the next thing and hope that, mm. <laughs> hope that it works out. And if it doesn't work out, I'll get a you know bookshop job or something. Mm. So um, I was able to do that luckily. And I live in a very inexpensive city as far as American cities go. So it all worked out better than it really should have. Um, and I have been able to write full time ever since then. It's amazing to have that passion and that drive and enthusiasm to want to do that, isn't it? It is. But, it, you know, it's it's that kind of thing where I feel like when you hear interviews with like, I think specifically, I, I see this a lot with comedians, but I'm sure in any, you know, entertainment or arts industry, you hear that thing of like, if you can do anything else, do the other thing. But I think with all the writers I know, all the working writers I know, it's like, you can't not do this, even when it's making you unhappy, it's still making you happier than the alternative of not doing this. That's so cool. So you're saying like getting up and getting those words out on paper made you happy even though you were, you know, yeah. so busy. I mean, so. and still today it's like it's so interesting. I was talking with a friend, writer friend recently about how it almost feels like writing is an addiction the way that like social media or something is an addiction where you get that dopamine rush and mm. it's like there's 5% of the time when writing feels like you are experiencing the best high of your life and then the other 95% of the time it's just very hard work and you feel like you're just you know a lemon that's being squeezed really really tight trying to get words out one at a time but you just can't stop doing it because you're still chasing that feeling that you get that other 5% of the time when you're just like wow if i felt this all the time, I would probably forget to like eat and go to the bathroom and bathe and mm. live my life because I would just be writing nonstop. It's like when you're watching a really good program and you just want to know what happens and you want, you know, the next really good exactly. twist to happen, but you're actually writing it for yourself. It's, yeah, it is like that. It's like, you know, the dishes piling up and, you know, your clothes are getting filthier and filthier as you work. But again, like 95% of the time, it's like you'd rather do almost anything else. But then when you sit down and do it, there's still this feeling of like, I'm, <laughs> I really don't know how to explain it. And I, I'm sure not everyone feels this way, but a lot of my friends and I have discussed this, the feeling that it's like kind of terrible, but you still like it. I, I don't really, it's like, it's work at the end of the day. It is work. It's not mm -hmm. just fun. It feels like work that you're doing, yeah. but you just want to do it anyway, you know, mm -hmm. and I and I feel like I'm an incredibly lazy person when it comes to almost everything outside of writing, like I will let <laughs> any amount of housework go, I'm thrilled to cancel plans and stay home. But with writing specifically, it's like I pour everything into it. Well, you can see that definitely. I know you started out, you. you were writing young adults fiction. What's your age yeah. Yeah. So a couple different things. One, I was reading a lot of young adult fiction because the pacing of those stories, it was sort of like this new sensibility, I feel like that was evolving in fiction where it tended to be really fast paced. It tended to be really emotive. It wasn't 
um, you know, coming out of a creative writing program, like most of what we were reading was somewhat dry and kind of veered away from engaging with emotion. And that was kind of seen as like lazier writing. I'm, I'm not really totally sure, but it felt like that was where I could find books that felt authentic to my experience of being a human, not in that I was a teenager because I wasn't anymore, but mm -hmm. feeling like your emotions are important and they're an important part of your story and you're connecting with whatever you're reading because you can feel these characters' emotions. You're able to empathize so deeply with them. So that was part of it, just liking kind of the trademarks of the category, like what was becoming known as young adult fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other part was that I love a good coming-of-age story. And at that point in my life, I was in my mid-20s, and the only coming-of-age that I had experienced was in my teenage years. And I honestly did not know. Like, everybody talks about the midlife crisis but nobody talks about all of the other mini crises you have throughout your life and the fact that it feels like every so often, like every seven to 10 years, you just have this miniature um, coming of age where everything's sort of changing and you're reevaluating yourself and your career and your relationships and kind of molting, like just taking on this new form. So that's so true. I, can I had been doing so much. Yeah. Do you feel like nobody warned you that that would happen? <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, when you're leaving your 20s and going into your 30s, I feel like for me that happens a little bit. You know, I feel like you should act whatever age you want. But there is that little bit of like, right, I'm, I'm not really in my 20s anymore. And I don't really want to be. I kind of am ready for just a different pace of life and a different priorities, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And that was, you know, so that was what moved me into writing these romance novels was just the feeling that I was, yeah, in my late 20s and early 30s. Just having that experience where it was like the ground did not feel stable under me and my perception of the world and my belief systems and my relationships, all of that was changing. And then who I had always seen myself as was changing sort of what you're talking about when in your 20s, you think of yourself in this and you're like, this is who I am. And then your 30s, you're like, oh, that was a time in my life. Mm. I actually don't want to be out at bars until 3 a.m. every night. <laughs> like I, I have other desires. I like being at home. I'm more of an introvert than I realized, whatever it is. There's so much in your late 20s and early 30s of just looking at the decisions that you've been making and trying to figure out what still fits. Because you realize that you're you're different. You're more nebulous than you thought you were. You thought you were this really concrete thing. Like, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. These are how I make my decisions. And then, you know, as you get older, it's like you kind of are constantly figuring out what to leave behind and what matters enough to take it with you. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I do think like in your 30s as well, it's like you want to start figuring things out, like where you want to be and what, you know, in your 20s, it's a little bit more yeah. free, I think. And yeah, no, I definitely felt that moving into my 30s, which was only, what, six, seven months ago. <laughs> uh, congratulations. It's it's pretty great here. But there is that crisis, that feeling that like before you were OK to coast yeah. a little bit more and you you know that you're like a young person mm -hmm. and then you get into your 30s and you're like, this is weird because I am still a young person. But it's like the first time you feel that ticking clock, I think, where you're like, should I be further along than mm -hmm. I am? What would that look like? And honestly, like, I know we're, we're going to get into all of this, but that is what Happy Place, my new book really is about, is that feeling of looking around in your 30s and realizing all of your friends are for the first time kind of in a slightly different place than each other. Whereas in your 20s, it just feels like you're all kind of 
experiencing the same world and Mm -hmm. your friendship feels maybe a bit more convenient like we're always in the same places and we like doing the same things and then you get into your 30s and you're like okay these people are having a baby Mm. and this relationship that's been going for a really long time this couple is splitting up now and here's someone who's been happy at their career for 15 years and you know my other friend who's like should I go back to school for the third time because Mm -hmm. I still don't know what job I want to have it can be a lot of pressure on people yeah it does and I think especially when you look around at your friends and you think there's one one specific path that you're all on. And I don't think that's really the truth. But in your 30s, when you're watching everyone, you know, make different decisions for themselves, it really is so easy to compare and think that you're all on the same path and people are ahead of you. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. And if it's something you can relate to, and you have your friends to kind of lean on, it must be an easy one to write about, you know, and I'm sure there's loads of people you can lean on for ideas and opinions. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so much of what I'm pulling from anytime I start a book is really thinking about the questions I've been asking myself and what I've been experiencing in my life anyway. So there's already thoughts that have been percolating, not from the perspective of, oh, I could write about this, Mm -hmm. but just from this perspective of I'm experiencing this. So yeah, I mean, the last couple of years, it was like my first very close local friend had a baby. And that was just like a really interesting thing to see how the whole dynamic of this big group of friends that we have shifts slightly because you now have to factor in, is the baby going to be there? Is there going to be a sitter for the baby? You know, other people being like, oh, should we have a baby? Like, if we wait too long, then our babies won't grow up together. And other people deciding they definitely don't want to have babies. So it was definitely like, it wasn't even so much that I had to pull from friendships after the fact. It was like, this is what I'm already thinking about. And Mm -hmm. that's why I'm excited to write about it. You know, I think it's a really interesting idea. And I'm excited to read the book. But Thank you. there's a lot of criticism, I suppose, around romance novels. Yeah. Is that something that you've had to deal with? Yeah. And it's something I'm really passionate about dealing with, which is interesting because I'm overall like the least confrontational person on the planet. But when I hear romance novels being misunderstood or denigrated, I really <laughs> go into like, like I'm protecting romance as a genre. I'm like, it's a little, I don't know, defender probably doesn't need that from me, but I get really fired up about it because I think it is so rooted in misogyny. I think the same way that, you know, like I was talking about in college, reading all of this work that was really devoid of emotion. And most of it was by men, most of that by white men, and most of that by like dead white men. So it was like a way of approaching story and art that has been treated so long as the right way and how you can tell if something is quote unquote good. Mm -hmm. And because that's how I was learning to write, I bought into that, you know, a decent amount. And then when I started writing young adult was the first time that I was questioning that way of criticizing and analyzing story in general, thinking like, why do we think it is gauche to write about feelings why do we take something less seriously if we know how the characters are feeling about it and we're giving that space on the page and you know there's a lot of similar criticism for young adults especially because a lot of adults read it and if you're an adult who doesn't read it then you have opinions sometimes about whether it's worth adults time but it's like that was the place that so many of us were going to for the same kinds of reasons that I think now people are who haven't been long-term romance readers are starting to read romance. It's that feeling of like, oh, we're we're validating this whole experience. We're validating that this is a worthy story, that your emotions and feelings and your, you know, emotional transformation are worth talking about. I remember reading something a long time ago about how women, like women painters, their subjects like tended to be so much more domestic because that was 
their terrain. It was like they're painting the things that they get to experience and be around all day. And then male painters were, you know, painting so much of a wider swath of subjects because their lives were allowed to be much bigger. And so I think that was, you know, kind of setting us up to take men's art more seriously. And now it's like women obviously don't have the same experience that women in like the 1600s had. But I think that we're still socialized to really care about the small and the micro and the domestic. You know, we spend so much time thinking and talking about our relationships Mm -hmm. and our feelings. And we're, we're taught that, I think, from a very young age. And so anytime that is present in a story, I think it's really helpful. Um, yeah, it's like you relate you like you relate to it, but it also is, I think, marks that story as less likely to be taken seriously. Okay. And that- because again, you're like, oh, this is such a small little story. I even remember in the New York Times book review, I had two friends who got their books reviewed in the same issue, and one was a man and one was a woman. And it was really interesting because the tone of the review was so different. It was like describing my man friend's book as just like really sweeping and expansive and dramatic. And then it didn't use the word domestic, but for my the woman writer, it was really getting at that. It was saying like, this is just a really small story. And, you know, it's so like niche, basically. And it's interesting because I'd read both books and they were, I mean, they were very similar. It was like following a coming of age in a small town with a very small cast of characters going about their daily lives. But somehow the reviewer reading those two books had very different reactions and thought like this one is this sweeping, relatable coming of age that everyone will connect to. And then this one about the girl by a woman is really small and niche. There's probably some bias at play there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, usually not intentionally. But yeah, I'm all that to say I'm a huge proponent of romance novels now. I think they're very valuable, but I understand that there's a lot of people who still don't get it. And I think that unfortunately that is coming from a place of misogyny, not necessarily from those people, but just from how we're taught to think about things. Yeah. And I think you can take a fresh stance on that and say, it's okay to enjoy something. It's okay to have something be lighthearted and be about, you know, the the fun topics that we like talking about and thinking about and like I love reading them and I know one of your first you know really popular books was called Beach Read and that's when a lot Mm -hmm. of people are introduced to romance. Yeah and I mean that's a huge compliment to me because I am a relative newcomer to reading romance and I really feel like it made my life better and it helped me get through a rough time and was kind of this mental health like support system I had when I was not like totally taking care of myself otherwise. And I think, you know, it was just so good for me as a person. So I'm really grateful when people let me know that Beach Read helped them find romance or discover that they liked romance. But you also mentioned you like something lighthearted and like, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting a book that is going to make you happy. But I would even go a step further and say, it is so much harder, I think, to write something funny that makes you feel good than it is to make your readers feel pain. Like, I think it's actually so much easier to write something very sad and upsetting. Mm. It's like, we all know, we all know it hurts people. We all know mm-hmm. you can manipulate your audience if you want to and and just destroy them. But it's really hard to write something that will make people laugh and, mm. you know. And still have it like, I, 
understood as a yeah. as a really you know good piece of writing I can understand oh, that yeah you know still I think I have a lot of people who love my books but they don't take my books seriously and I know that because they tag me <laughs> in posts about my books where they're like just a fun easy brainless you know it's like they love it but they're still kind of apologizing for loving it and not thinking about I don't know I'm really impressed when a book feels easy when I'm reading a book and it sweeps me away and I am not thinking about real life or like trying to apply mm. messages from the novel to my real life. I am so impressed with that as a reader and writer when I'm reading a book and I just kind of like forget I'm reading. Yeah, that's why I read. Yeah. You know, as someone who spends Same. a lot of time on their phone, I just love when I pick up a book that I can't think about anything else and the time goes by and I don't even feel it. Yes, me too. And I think especially in the last few years, we've all needed that so much more. Yeah, 100%. What makes a good romance novel, do you think? I think that a huge part of it is tension. And to me, that means the feeling that there's a question that you need to have answered. And that might be something very like literal, like in uh, my second book, You and Me on Vacation. You know, I set it up kind of as like this mystery, even though it's not very mysterious. We were like, okay, these two people have stopped speaking and traveling together and being friends. Why? So you're, you know, kind of engaging readers. But in general, I think that's what makes a book work for me is if there's tension, if I have the question of like what happened or what's going to happen, the will that, you know, a lot of readers will talk about will they, won't they is kind of the driving force of a romance novel. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that it feels like will they or won't they, like you're not just buying into the fact that absolutely this is going to end a certain way. For me, that's always going to make me keep reading is if I'm not really totally sure how it's going to work out. And where does your idea of, you know, a good relationship or an appealing relationship, a relationship that people will connect to, where does that come from? I mean, some of it is just from real life. You know, it's like I'm putting a piece of my worldview into my books. So some of it's just like what I find appealing. Some of it, I do feel like I have a an uncommonly good representation of like lasting love in my life. My parents have been together. I think they were saying the other day, like 38 years they've been married 38 years and they still have a lot of fun together they still like each other they still spend most of their time together so you know I've seen that and I think the basis of that has always been very clearly respect like they just respect each other so much they never treat each other like the other one is stupid or you know when they argue it's like they're a little bit more cautious with each other which I think we tend to maybe think that the more like you just let it all out, then that's like a greater level of intimacy. But I think that there is a bit of truth to the idea that you need to protect your relationship and think through things before you say them and not just lash out and try and hurt someone. So all of that folds into it. But I think the big thing that I have noticed just from observing myself is that the imperfections in a person are often what really like sink into our heart and make us love them. And even in friendships, you know, when you're getting to know someone and you start noticing their little quirks or the things Mm -hmm. about them that seem a bit contradictory, that don't quite line up or the things that are just like funny and weird, like those are the things that makes you feel so close to them and it softens you to them. And I often find myself when I'm writing, having to stop, you know, after a first draft and look back and think like, what is it? that is weird about these characters that I can work in sooner because there's such a delight in discovering the little oddities of another person. I'm sure you're like walking around, people watching, (laughs) looking for all of these things all the time. Yeah. And I mean, and again, like a lot of it is just stuff I notice. Like, I think it's funny because I'm a pretty loud, talkative person, but I also think that I'm always observing in general, like not thinking, oh, I'm going to use this in a book, but just 
for my own sake, I'm just constantly observing. And so when I'm like getting to know a new friend, I still do find myself, you know, just feeling that feeling of like falling for a person and learning new little details that just amuse me because Mm -hmm. they're just like funny little anecdotes or what have you. I think about like in book lovers, for example, there is the fact that at one point Nora goes to the romantic lead Charlie's childhood home and she sees his childhood bedroom and he has this car bed. And that is really out of character and really surprising and, and funny. And I think when you're getting to know a person, I don't know, you feel like you're storing up these little kernels and everything about them just makes you so happy and you like kind of want to tell people these non-stories where you're like he had a car bed when he was a kid he had a car bed isn't that the best thing you've ever heard and you know I am part of multiple group chats where I'm not taking details from my friends dating lives but I witnessed that kind of wonder and delight constantly Mm. of people just sharing little details and then all of us being like oh that's so cute we love that we love the car bed Mm, it's like your own little focus group and you can see the reactions and what people kind of Engage, right? Exactly. And I'm not, again, I'm not pulling directly from them, but it, it's just a way that I'm unthinkingly, unintentionally mm-hmm. observing of course, yeah. it's people. Like, it's like how you live your life. You're an author. You mm-hmm. have to take your, you know, what you write about from somewhere or everywhere. Right. Yeah. So I know it's two, true. two of your books are now being turned into movies, which is so exciting. Like, you know, who's to say it's not going to be like the biggest romance movie of the year next year or oh two years time? <laughs> who's to say? I know. Now that you know that and you know these characters so well, you created them. Do you find yourself like thinking of things you want to add in and like how much control do you have over the yeah. over the movie's production or the way it will be created? So I am an executive producer for both. So I do have a voice, but I'm one of, you know, many and I am not at the top of that pyramid. There's Mm -hmm. like people who know things about (laughs) about film and then there are people who know things about business that I don't know. So I do have input. Um, I am not writing the script. But the script for People We Meet on Vacation slash You and Me on Vacation is by a writer named Yulene Quang, who is a huge romance lover. She actually has a romance novel coming out next year called Good in a Room. And we have the same agent. We've, you know, started to become friends. And and so like there are things, there are little things that will be added in where Mm. she's texted me questions like, what's Poppy's middle name? And I've not been able to remember if Poppy had a formal Mm. middle name. And so I've gone on Instagram to ask and people have confirmed that she did not. So like, I don't know if it'll make it to the final version of the film, but it's like Poppy has a middle name that I thought about for days and then texted Yulene and was like, this is Poppy's middle name. And there's some other little things like that where like she's consulting me. Everybody is doing more than they have to as far as keeping me in the loop and letting me have input. And yeah, I feel extremely lucky because I know that's not necessarily how things work like usually the author does kind of get shut out of the room from what I hear where Mm -hmm. like it's more hassle to let you in because you're so close to the project Mm -hmm. that you know you might not have a loose enough grip for the fact that an adaptation simply does have to change like it's not they're not going to be the book and that's good the book already exists and nobody can change that and nobody will change Mm -hmm. that the films will be their own thing where other artists are excited about using my book and putting their own spin on it. Mm -hmm. I know Book Lovers was taken on by the production company that created After Sun. Yes. I just watched that literally like last week. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. I I haven't seen it yet, but everybody I know has raved about it. So I was, yeah. And, And, you know, like the other thing about film announcements is they happen so long after 
like the ink is dry. Mm. So it's like, <laughs> I've known that this was going to happen for a long time, but After Sun wasn't even on my radar. And mm. then I didn't even realize that was one of their films because, you know, it's such a new movie. Mm. So when the announcement went up, I was like, oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that they made <laughs> After Sun. That's very cool. Yeah. No, you should definitely watch it. It's very sad though. So maybe watch it one yeah. day when you're feeling very happy. Because That's I was kind like... of why I haven't seen it yet. I'm so cautious about, and a lot of times if I'm going to watch something really sad, I watch it during the day be- mm. while I'm like doing laundry or mm. something because it feels like I'm more grounded in my real life mm. and can stay aware that it's a movie whereas you know the better a movie is the more you're just yeah. sucked into it and disclaimer you know it does yeah. touch on like mental health issues yeah and, you know and that's it is hard to watch you know yeah but it's powerful the way they've done it it's just amazing so that's so exciting and, and yeah. I know Sarah Hayward is writing the script yes. for that she's written the script for modern love and for girls like so exciting yeah she's fantastic and I know that there you know there already is a script but she's doing some touch-ups on it before I read but you know the producer who I've been in touch with is like so excited about the script has been telling me you know the first draft that she saw was like already close to perfect and I have some mutual friends with Sarah specifically and when they found out that Sarah was going to be writing all of them were reaching out saying you have no idea how perfect this is like your styles would go so perfectly together it's going to be exactly what you want it to be so I have complete faith have you any dream actresses or actors that you'd love to have oh my gosh I mean again that's like the thing where now seeing how it all happened I have had to really loosen my grip on all of that because there are so many things that you just don't think about it's like you're not just looking for actors who, you know, you can envision doing this. You're looking for actors who have great chemistry together, Mm -hmm. who have the same opening in their schedule, who actively want to do a rom-com, which is trickier than you would think, because I think there's been such a, you know, a a lull in rom-coms that you kind of have to win people over and be like, but this one's going to be like so good. Mm. Um, You're going to love it. And then, you know, just the fact of like actors cost money. And so there's just so many. And then the 45 different voices in the room saying, oh, they just did this movie. So that's like a little bit too similar. It's like there's so many little things I never thought about. So at this point, I am so wide open. I made it very clear from the beginning when speaking with the director and the producers of both projects that I don't need the characters to look like they were described. That is like such a lower priority to me than having it feel like the characters. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, you know, talking about having to separate the adaptation from the book a bit, I've really started thinking about it more like seeing a play where you know, the play exists no matter who is playing the parts and you're just seeing one version. You can be like, oh, did you see so-and-so's run of this play? And it's like the, the play exists no matter what, but the the characters are always shifting and people are bringing their own take depending mm-hmm. on who's being cast. So I'm wide open. You mentioned that there's been a lull in rom-coms and I think there's that, yeah. this idea that rom-coms are only for women. Oh, yeah. Do you think that's changing? I hope so. I mean, I will say I'm always surprised and delighted when I like encounter male readers of mine. Um, I, which is, I guess, says something that I'm still surprised by it. Yeah, I don't know. I think it is changing, but I think it's changing really slowly because I think women, again, have been socialized to apologize for what they like and to not expect their if they're specifically straight to not expect their partners to like what they like. 
And that's okay. Like Mm -hmm. people like different things. My partner like watches grisly horror movies after I go to bed half the time because I have a very small capacity for horror. But it's so funny, though, like in a way, because we both are programmed the same. We both love the same. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. One person might consume a lot more of the romance stuff than the other, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, every once in a while, especially around Halloween, I'll watch some horror, but it's not like a main part of my story diet. But I think it's like you talking about like respect again as like the kind of the crux of a love story, in my opinion, for men to like start realizing that they might love romance and romantic comedies, men who don't already know that, who, who would, you have to really respect women. Not that all women love romance. Obviously, I'm speaking in very general terms here. But because, you know, romance is primarily marketed toward women, women are the main readership for it. There's an element of respect there where it's like, you have to take women seriously. And you're probably less likely to do that if women are always slagging off the thing that they love. If they're like, oh, it's my guilty pleasure. You know, if they're kind of reinforcing the idea that like, I like it, but I know I shouldn't because it's bad and stupid, then men are like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, you like it, but it's bad and stupid. Got it. All right. And that's kind of how they approach the genre. Whereas instead, if you become like a a huge romance proselytizer like I am, then the men in your life who respect you begin to become a lot more curious about it. And they're not as likely to repeat the like insulting things that they may or may not have said to you about your life's work before you told them why they were wrong. Yeah, I think it's probably there's work to be done on both sides there. Yeah. But um, you've sold 2.4 million books and you spent 145 weeks in the New York Times bestsellers (laughs) list. Like that's incredible. That must be like a dream come true to hear somebody say that out loud to you. Yeah, I actually didn't know that those were the numbers until the I'm sure the research that you did that piece specifically must have gotten those numbers from my publisher and so I did not realize that do you feel like there's a pressure when you release a new book now yeah there is you know there is I I feel like my publishers uh, my various publishers have really invested in me heavily and more so now because they're expecting like a return on that investment but I think the biggest pressure is just wanting to keep my readers happy like that feels I think more daunting than will my sales you know match up to last Mm. time I think I just really want to keep making people happy (laughs) do you read like a lot of feedback to kind of learn what people really love kind of I try to be really careful about it because you know if you go on goodreads right now and go to one of your favorite books pages Mm. you can read back-to-back comments where people are saying the exact opposite thing because it's so subjective they can Mm -hmm. be like this book was so slow and nothing happened and then the next one could be like this book should have been 200 pages longer I didn't have a chance to connect any of the characters it moved too fast so it's like you have to be pretty careful about what you're taking to heart because you don't want to alienate the writers who already love what you do because you're trying to make space for readers who maybe don't love it as much. Of course. So I'm pretty careful about what input I actually integrate into my life. But I do feel like I'm always writing for the people who loved my previous books. And yeah. there's also the understanding that at some point, if it hasn't already happened, I'm going to write something that just doesn't work for them. Mm-hmm. And that has to be okay, too. I have to be true to like, what I want to be working on and what the story feels like it needs mm-hmm. to me. But on a large, broad scale, I'm always just trying to think about 
what overall I think people connect with. Yeah, and you from can't my be books and you can't be all things to all people. You have to focus on. You can't. You know the people that enjoy reading your books, and you know you're doing incredible. So you're definitely on the right track. Thank you. Out of those two point four <laughs> million books, is there anyone that you've seen reading your book that you're like, oh my god, that's so cool? Um. Yes, there there have been a couple. So, um, Catherine Heigl read Book Lovers and messaged me about oh it. Oh my god! Cool. I was just like, this is so surreal. Just you know, she had really lovely things to say, and that felt really special because she was in you know a lot of rom coms when yes. I was like coming of age myself. And then I'm trying to think writer wise, it's always like Jody Pico. Jody Pico, I think read. I don't know if Reed was the first one she read or You and Me on Vacation, but that felt huge because again, Jody Pico is like just so popular, at least, you know, over here when I was growing up, just so popular and still so popular and amazing and talented. I always get like a little bit of, I get more imposter syndrome, I think, when other writers are reading my book because I have a hard time believing, I'm I'm just so sure that it can't live up to their expectations if I really admire them. Yeah, no, I understand that, but you are an incredible writer and I'm just so excited Thank to you. read to read Happy Place. What's next on, so on your list? You seem to have ticked off a lot, you know, so far. Have you any other dreams that you really want to go after? Oh, that is such a good question. So because I am not adapting the films that are in progress myself, I'm not writing the scripts, I really do want to write at least one of my own adaptations. Whether it gets made or not, I would like to do that. And I also would like to write an original film that doesn't start as a book. I think that that would be really fun to have something new in the works. So those are those are pretty high up. And then the other thing that is just funny and <laughs> doesn't exactly make sense is my agent has sort of like a vision board, a manifestation board, like for my career. And we're always just like, okay, what's on the board? What have we not done yet? And she recently was like, you know what? I just added Taylor Swift question mark to the board. And she's like, I don't know what it means. I just put it on the board and we're going to manifest something involving Taylor Swift. And we don't know what it is. So that, you know, that's like on my list of dreams that have yet to come to so, fruition it's just taylor swift question mark i'm a big swifty and literally listening to you at the start talk about you know writing your feelings and writing you know about love and yeah you know and people not taking it seriously and you know this kind of thing like that's what was going through my head and i was like why yes. does that keep why does that keep well, obviously because I was, I was literally listening to this morning on the way up in the car so that's oh probably gosh. part of it but yeah no that's funny that you say that maybe i'm psychic <laughs> you, you first of all you probably are at least a little bit psychic and second of all I think, you know, there there is overlap. I mean, there's overlap for Taylor Swift and any other like fandom or audience because she has so many fans. So it's like not like, you know, just she and I are sharing a little Venn diagram, mm -hmm. but there is an overlap there. And I think, again, it's the same thing, that feeling of being seen and respected. It's like we're not minimizing these experiences and pretending that it's like silly that you are feeling these things. We're giving them space and time to take them very seriously. Mm -hmm. I, and I think, yeah, that's why we love her. I think sometimes people have a misconception listening to her music that it's like a lot of breakup songs and it's all sad and that kind of thing. My boyfriend included. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're like, some of them are happy. You know, you need to listen. Yeah. And it's just about feeling some something. Of, right. And some of them are just like beautiful, like ready to be a novel. I don't know, ballads. Like, 
I gave my partner a um, like a history of Taylor Swift. Same thing. It was like he hadn't really listened. He didn't really understand. And I was like, let me explain this to you. He also is not like a lyrics guy at all. He's like very into the music and the lyrics just don't matter to him. And I was like, you need to understand that she is one of the best working writers today. And we listened to Last Great American Dynasty and was like, listen to this. It takes her so few words to tell you what would be like truly an emotionally wrought novel length thing in anyone else's hands. He will literally sound exactly like me. I've done that. I've done that exact thing. (laughs) But she wrote all been in that scenario. She wrote a song for uh, what was it called? Carolina? Yeah, for Where the Crawdads Sing. So there you go. It's definitely something that maybe that's yeah, that's the Taylor Swift question mark on the vision board. We'll see. Oh my God, that's so exciting. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed chatting to you and I'm so excited to get stuck into your new book and I hope loads of people listening will as well after listening Thank to you, you speak. So and yeah, no, I'm just so excited for you. You've got exciting times ahead. Thank you, Louise. I really, really appreciate you having me and all of your wonderful questions. This was just a very special day. Thanks so much to Emily Henry for joining us today. I've really enjoyed chatting with her about the world of romance novels and writing. And if hearing this has inspired you to try out a romance novel for the first time, why not pick up Emily's new book, Happy Place? Don't forget, you can listen back to more great episodes of Open Book on the Go Loud player. And we have a new episode released each Wednesday, as well as the bonus episode out on Monday.